This is the Get Healthy 360 Podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, financial, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary health care provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. All right. Welcome to Get Healthy 360. Today, we are lucky enough to have with us John Rennie. He's a business leader, author, and speaker. He is the co-founder and president and CEO of Peak Demand Incorporated, a global manufacturer of products for electrical utilities. So not only did he serve as a naval officer on nuclear submarines during the Cold War, he's also been a leader of industrial business for the last 20 years. Not only does he coach and is an author of multiple books. Um, the book that I read that is out right now is I Have the Watch. He has another book coming out in the next few months. Uh, he's also passionate about leadership, employee engagement. His articles and blog posts have been read and shared all over the world. And today what we're talking about is leadership, leadership really in all forms. What we'll talk about is his background and how he became a naval officer in a submarine again during the Cold War, which is a whole new level of stress. Um, We'll also talk about self-care as a leader. How do you take care of yourself to lead others? We'll talk about leadership at home. As a parent, how do you lead your children? And I think it is noteworthy that John has been married to the same woman for his entire life, um, which definitely beats the odds and has raised two children who are successfully moving on to college and one is joining the Navy. And then we will also talk about business, his business philosophy and how he manages to be an author, consultant, and run a successful manufacturing firm. So John, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, it's great to be here. So John, what would possess someone to want to be in a nuclear submarine in the middle of the Cold War? It's <laughs> a great question. I get that question asked a lot. And it very surprisingly, I would say even before I entered high school, I was fascinated with underwater warfare. Um, I had two grandfathers that served in World War II, and I was fascinated with, with reading stories of you know, battles that happened in World War II. And, and for some reason, submarines always fascinated me, the idea of underwater warfare. And it just seemed like you were adding another dimension uh, to naval warfare that was fascinating to me. And of course, you know, I grew up in the Cold War. And of course, we had the, the you know, at, at, that, the, at that time, our enemy, the America's enemy was the Soviet Union, and they built submarines, we built submarines. And this idea of a cat and mouse chasing each other around the Atlantic and the Pacific Ocean just seemed fascinating to me. It was almost like, well, I didn't really want to be an astronaut. Like, I didn't think I could could ever be an astronaut because so many few people get there. But I felt like I had a chance to get on a submarine. And a submarine is about as close as you can get to going into space because you're basically isolated in a very dangerous environment like you would be in space. So, yeah, I was fascinated from an early age. And uh, I pursued math and science, uh, you know, throughout high school and then into college to be able to get onto the boats and be able to get into the Navy and be able to serve on a submarine. And what was your position as a naval officer on the submarines? So I was what they call a line officer. And a line officer means that you're being trained up to actually command uh, the ship one day. So we served multiple roles. Uh, For example, my first job I got there, I was the reactor controls officer. I was responsible for all the 
the men who maintained the systems that uh, operated the or that, that measured the nuclear reactor. I went on to become the machinery officer, which basically was responsible for all the equipment, all the mechanical equipment in the engine room. And then I became the missile officer. And of course, this is during the Cold War, and uh, we had 24 nuclear missiles pointed towards our adversary, and I was responsible for those missiles uh, for that. That was the last uh, job I had on board. So a lot of people, there, there are countless books written about the analogy between business and war and how many of the same strategies will apply to business and war. But it's different to actually live it where you've, you're living in the business world, you've lived it in the military world. And when I think of, and most people can identify with an office setting, you may have interpersonal conflicts with your colleagues because that's the nature of people. But in the business world, you can go home and get a break from your colleagues. And the consequences of not getting along with your colleagues are not as severe as the military where you're just on the ship that, that could be blown up if, if everyone isn't functioning as a team. If, if a business goes under, it's unfortunate and there are financial consequences, but, but it's not like literally the world will implode on you. So how did you, how did you, how did you manage that? Yeah, you know, I, I didn't really realize until later on in my career that, you know, getting to serve as a leader on a nuclear submarine was a very unique training ground for leadership. Uh, you, as you mentioned correctly, you would, you were stuck with the people you deployed with. So you were, you know, 24-7 for 90 days underwater, you were stuck with the people that, uh, that were on that particular patrol. And if you think about it, it's almost like one day you come into work and then they lock all the office doors and says, no, you know, we say no one can go home for 90 days. Oh, and by the way, there's a nuclear reactor and nuclear missiles that you need to maintain. Oh, and the average age is about uh, 20 years old. So it's a really unique environment. And um, what ended up happening for me, at least, is that I learned that um, I learned the power of people. I learned how important it was to have strong relationships with people. Um, You couldn't avoid um, someone that you disagreed with. So I learned to get along with people from all different walks of life. And then we, we did very difficult things, uh, you know, often not sleeping for days on end, you know, and then operating these very complex systems. We were in a position where the enemy was always around us, right? If, if it wasn't a Soviet boat out there, it was the sea pressure that could kill us. So we all were responsible for having each other's back. So even the most junior person on board could cause uh, a situation where everybody could could be killed. So it was really important to train up the young people and train up the new people to make sure they were qualified and they knew what they were doing. So all that experience I took into the business world and uh, I realized that that was just a great proving ground to be able to learn some of these skills because it's really necessary today, especially um, leadership today. It's all about interpersonal skills. It's all about getting along with people that you don't necessarily agree with. It's all about directing people towards the mission and also that they're reminding them that the enemy is outside of the company, not inside the company. So people, you know, and especially in corporate America, you see a lot of people fighting infighting. Well, it's marketing's fault. It's engineering's fault. It's, you know, it's uh, accounting's fault. But the truth of the matter is the enemy is outside. And, and that's something that the Navy taught me was always focusing that if you were upset with something, you better be upset about the, the competitors and not the people inside your own business. 
The interesting thing to me about the military, especially the microcosm of a, a nuclear submarine, is in, say, the business world, if someone isn't performing, you can fire them and hire someone else. I would imagine you can't just fire someone when you're deployed in the middle of wherever it is you're deployed in. So how it's easy to manage people, I think, that are top performers and they always do their job and they, they follow orders and they're great. But especially if you're dealing with people in their early 20s and they haven't quite learned those skills, how do you manage someone like that who's difficult when you can't really fire them? You're in the middle of a war and you need them to work. Yeah. So it's interesting. I think that's really where I learned the the importance of personal relationships and, and knowing how each person ticks and what makes them, what motivates them, what makes them upset. So, you know, I think in corporate America, at least my experience, I spent 22 years in corporate America before starting my own company. And what I what I saw was a lot of bosses wanted to take a cookie cutter approach to dealing with people. Like you said, you can discipline them, you can fire them. But they, they tend to they tend to say, well, like one size fits all. And one thing I learned in the Navy, in the tight quarters on a submarine, um, you really got to know the people that work for you, the people I worked for, we really knew how each other t- ticked. So we found, so you're able to find ways to motivate them just like you would, you know, um, as a parent, you have children, you know, I have two boys and they're, they both are different, right? They, they, they react differently to uh, feedback. My oldest son, you could yell at him. He just, he does not bother. He's not bothered by that. My youngest son, he is bothered when you yell at him. So you learn actually what uh, what each employee or each, what each sailor, what worked with them. So uh, yeah, I mean, we you couldn't fire somebody. You were, you were with them. You were deployed with them. Uh, there were options and ways that you could do discipline, um, but we never really got to that level. You were able to work with people and say, hey, you know, I noticed you did this and that's not the way we do it here. Let me explain why. And uh, most times that's all it took to get people on board and get them corrected and moved in the right direction. So it's interesting that you, it sounds like you'd personalize your leadership style to every individual. So there are several leadership styles. There's the autocratic style, authoritative style, a pace setting style, a more of a democratic style where you'd get consensus. There's more of that coaching style. Um, or just kind of view the laissez-faire where you sit back and let things kind of go how they go. Can you, on the ones that you're interested in commenting on, some of the pros and cons of the different leadership styles and when they would be appropriate and not appropriate, or if you, I'm sure if you have stories as well. <laughs> yeah, no, see, so, you know, you think like autocratic is not a good, a good leadership style, and typically it's not in a, in a, in a business setting and what have you. But it's interesting, we went from being, I would say we went from being a coaching style in most cases in the Navy until we went to battle stations <laughs> and, we, and we had to do difficult things. And then it became very authoritative because it was really important that you, you, you gave precise commands and that the, the, the people working for you uh, understood the commands and carried out those commands. So we were dealing with, for example, just even coming in and out of port. It's a very precise operation that if you, one mistake and you can run the submarine aground, which is not a good thing, right? Um, so you're dealing with nuclear weapons, you're dealing with torpedoes, you're dealing with complex systems. That when There are some times when you really want the employees to listen and follow uh, directions. But it's interesting, we would go into battle stations and we would conduct that very serious almost authoritarian type of uh, leadership style 
But as soon as that we secure from battle stations, you'd almost go back to that coaching style. And, and I think that happens too, sometimes in business, right? When, when we, when we face a crisis, sometimes you've, well, I would say often you need to change your leadership style in the middle of a crisis and, and be able to respond appropriately. You can't just, you know, be laid back and eh, it's, you know, it's just a, it's just a pandemic. It's going to be fine. Uh, no, you've got to take charge when things happen to your business and people want to know that they've got a leader that's going to step up when things, when things go wrong or things, uh, when there's a tough situation. So I think, I don't think one coaching style fits all. And I think you have to be some somewhat fluid with your style based on the circumstances. And I found that in the Navy and I do that today in my company. So I think it's easy to understand the authoritative style in, say, a pandemic or a crisis, or if you're at battle stations, there are strict orders that have to be followed. But can you explain or clarify what you mean by a coaching style? Well, I think it's almost, you know, uh, so coach is kind of interesting. So um, if you think about it, the coaches and leaders are very similar. But one thing I learned as I observe coaches, and I have a lot of friends that are coaches, uh, is that one of the things that a coach has to do is step off the field, right? They have to, you know, train, teach, demonstrate, uh, organize their, their, you know, the, the team. But then they have to step off the field and let their players play. And that's something that leaders sort of miss out sometimes. They think that they have to play uh, they have to direct every little activity that their employees are doing. And um, the fact of the matter is, is that we as leaders uh, are served best if we can train up our people and then step off the p- field and let them lead, let them do what they're trained to do. I mean, a lot of companies hire great employees, phenomenal people, and then they never give them the chance to really shine because they're always on top of them and directing everything they do. So I think part of coaching is, is, you know, making, you know, and then, and then you, you, part of coaching is, you know, correcting when people have, when, when they miss out, but it's, but I think it's part of it is, is, um, you know, getting your people trained up, make sure they know what to do, but also then stepping off the field and letting them do, do what they do best. If say you were a coach's coach and it's easy if you're a coach and you, you really want your team to perform to almost micromanage what they do. Do you have any advice, especially from the naval standpoint, of how to get a leader to step back and, as you said, let just let the players play? Yeah, no, it's a good. Um, uh, I had a guest on on my podcast recently, and um, he is a high performance um, uh, coach, and he deals with uh, NCAA teams. He helps coaches them. In fact, one of the teams he coached then ended up winning a national championship. It was a women's volleyball team. But one of the things he noticed is that when it got down to the wire, he was talking with the coaches and, and, and the uh, players. When, when, when things got tough and they got serious, this particular coach would get nervous and he would start pacing back, back and forth. And he would, whenever they made a mistake or one of the, like the server made a mistake, he, he would yank the ser- server right away and, and, and replace and replace it with another player. And so what he, what he learned was is that everyone got nervous when he started, because he would change as the as the as the uh, as things got more critical in the game, and what they said was, "You you need to trust us." Then so he would work with them, and the players told the coach, "You need to trust us." And when it comes to this, we we do know what we're doing, and and you pacing and you pulling us makes us nervous. And it turns out that um, he did listen to the players. He did listen to this 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 uh, high performance coach. 
And he stopped doing that. And they credit just him relaxing more during the tough, critical times in a game to them winning that national championship because he was able to just let them play and let them do their 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 uh, their job. So, you know, we almost and he said it was funny. He said, you know, we coaches sort of mimic what they think is the right behavior. You know, they think it's 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 appropriate to pace up and down and to yell at the referees and 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 yank a player. And uh, and what it, what in fact was is that it was creating nervousness and it was causing them to lose tough games. So. I think it's 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 part of just letting go and letting people learn and letting people experience um, things on their own. So I think um, I think sometimes we've we've got to be able to step back and step off the field and let our let our players or good players do what they do best. So it's it's what's interesting is really by him being able to self-regulate his behavior, that then echoed out or rippled out into the entire team and allowed them to do well. Which I think is a nice transition to what do you think. Are, if there are a lot of things that people can do, but what would you say are some of the top things that leaders can do to really take care of themselves so that way they can lead a team? Yeah, no, that's a really important topic, especially now. You know, we've we've been six months, seven months into this pandemic, and it's been a lot, it's been very stressful. I do, you know, I do coach other leaders, and I do see a high level of stress um, in them because you know they're facing uncertainty and things that. Um, they've never seen before, right? They get, I'm facing the same thing as a business leader, right? Uh, my people ask me, well, what's going to happen? When the, when the pandemic first happened, they said, well, you know, John, what's going to happen? And, you know, the, the truth of the matter is I didn't know what was going to happen. I didn't know we were going to be allowed to even continue to run our manufacturing plant. So there's a lot of unknowns, a lot of uncertainty. And so one of the things that I do talk a lot about when I'm talking with leaders, especially in these times, is just to make sure, make sure that you take care of yourself. And what do I mean by that? Well, it means you've got to you've got to take care of yourself both you know physically, spiritually, and mentally. And it's really important that you have a good support system in place uh, to be able to deal with those uh, situations when you're away from work and you're fe- you know facing a lot of doubt. You know what what's your support system? Do you have a mentor? Do you have uh, a spouse that you can turn to? Do you have close friends, uh, peers that you can bounce ideas off of? And I think the more that you do to take care of yourself. And to uh, and have that support system in place, the better off you'll be prepared to when you know when the storms come. When um, you know it's interesting, you know, using a navy navy analogy, when things are easy, you know, when the sea state is is light and uh, it's a nice day out, anybody can be the officer of the deck, right? Anyone. So say the submarine's on the surface, it's a beautiful day. Anyone can be the officer of the deck. It's not that hard to do. But when things get rough, the sea state's heavy, you might have a potential enemy nearby and there's high stress situation, you know, the sailors want to make sure that they they have an experienced officer at the helm and that he looks like he's not afraid, (laughs) right? I mean, the one thing that can spread fear is is seeing the leader uh, shaking in his boots, right? You don't want to have that happen. So so part of it is... um, is you've got to be ready for that. So you have to prepare yourself for when the, the tough times come. And I think that right now there are tough times and you need to be taking care of yourself. So it means, you know, it's, it's exercising, not overeating. It's, it's getting plenty of sleep and it's making sure you have a good support system. Those are really, really important. I know for me personally, uh, that's been very helpful uh, for me just to kind of stay in the fight and uh, keep my stress level low. And, um, you know, 
Uh, it's funny. I have an expression. I always say um, my employees will say to me, uh, you know, they'll bring up an issue and they're concerned about it. I, and I, one of the expressions I use is I say, well, right. It's, it's not a problem right now. So right now it's not a problem. Uh, and it's only a problem until it becomes a problem right now. It's not a problem. So let's not worry about it. So I think it's, it's trying to, to get them, you know, facing the realities of the situation. What do we know? What can we attack first and uh, not get worried about what we can't control or what we don't know about. So uh, that's, that's really important during times like this. And I would say the other thing too is leaders um, is that there's always opportunity, even in a crisis. So even in tough times, there are opportunities. And I think our job as leaders is to keep an eye out for those opportunities. So it's the same thing as being uh, uh, an officer on the bridge of a of a submarine is you're looking out for obstacles, but you're also looking out for opportunities. And and you have a view of the organization that the rest of the team doesn't. So you got to keep an eye out onto what uh, what potential opportunities are. And the great leaders right now in business are pivoting. They're pivoting their business towards ways they can make money and they can grow even in a crisis. So that's just some things that I've been talking with other leaders about, but it's about staying healthy, being healthy, and then um, being there for your employees um, during this crisis. What does your physical, I guess, routine or practice look like? What can, when you said exercise, exercise routine, what do you mean by exercise routine? Uh, I mean, for me personally, I, uh, I'm, uh, I get up at 4 a.m. every morning. Um, I write from 4 to 5, and from 5 to 6, I have a home gym, and I'm in the gym working out. So, And that's every day. Um, weekends, I, I don't get up that early. <laughs> but, uh, but I do work out every day. I think it's important because I think we deal with a lot of stressors, and I think working out, physical workout, um, uh, just – you know, getting a chance to sweat and uh, it, it um, it's good for the soul. It, it, it sort of releases all that anxiety and all that stress. And, and if you don't do that, you know, say you're going through a tough time and, and you're, you're bottling all that inside of you and then you start overeating because you're stressed and you're, and uh, so you start gaining weight. Uh, you know, you don't have any, any release for, for that anxiety or that stress. I just think it's very unhealthy. And I see a lot of people dealing with anxiety and stress right now and they don't have that release and I think as humans we're built to work and uh and we if we don't use our bodies I think that um our mind I think pay, takes over and I think that can't be a good thing I 100% agree with you so the first what time do you go to bed if you're getting up at you said <laughs> four in the so, morning no, no I'm I'm in bed at uh, around 9:30 so yeah it's an early it's an early to bed so, so you're getting about get what seven hours of sleep yeah, at best. At best, <laughs> I, all right. <laughs> I definitely don't get enough sleep, um, so I'll confess that. But I, I try to make up on the weekends. Fair enough. Um, and then, w- so what specifically do you do when you're exercising? And you said it was about an hour of exercise? Yeah, about an hour. Um, I'm a, uh, I am pr- primarily weight train. Um, I was a, uh, I, I ran uh, a bunch of half marathons, and I was a runner at one point in time. But um, now that I'm older, I'm 53, I just mostly do um, uh, weight workouts. So I have a I have a gym in the house and mostly mostly powerlifting, you know, weight training that sort of thing. Okay, and is it more of a CrossFit style workout where you're doing that high intensity workouts, or is it strictly more um, Olympic lifting? Uh, it's more, yeah, it's more. <clears throat> it's it's I would say more Olympic lifting. <clears throat> Although um, I do mix it up. Like today was a like a circuit training, more of a 
uh, CrossFit kind of workout. So I do, I do, I do mix it up a bit. And and I know there'll be people that want to know how did why did you pick Olympic lifting? Because Olympic lifting is is a technical skill and it's not an easy thing to learn and it, it's relatively easy to hurt yourself if, if you don't know what you're doing. It's great if you like you know what you're doing. But how did you pick that as a workout? Well, actually, I, I said Olympic, but it's truthfully what I do is power. It's traditional power lifting. So it's um, so there's three main exercises, which is your squat, your deadlift, and your bench. And that's those are the three main exercises. And of course, you work. It's almost a blend in some of the things I do are more sort of bodybuilding and, and, um, uh, and powerlifting kind of combined. So it's not really Olympic lifting per se. So okay. It's those three main lifts that you work on. So that's the physical aspect, the mental aspect. What do you do to keep mentally sharp? So this is really interesting. So um, think about this. We, we spend a lot of time, uh, we have a lot of free time as a society in general, right? So we spend a lot of time watching Netflix and, and listen to music and we do a lot of different things. But I've, I tend to find, uh, fill my, my free time with learning. So um, I am an advocate of, uh, uh, of, of basically what I call uh, windshield university, right? When you're in the car, you have opportunities to listen and learn. And I'm always listening to something new and I'm learning something about I'm either doing an audio book or I'm listening to podcasts on leadership and business. And, and um, what's funny is I'm always... Uh, I'm always learning and I'm always taking notes. And when you say, when I say taking notes, I'm always leaving myself uh, voice messages from something I pick up from a book or from a podcast that I'm like, Oh, I gotta, I gotta, that's a great idea. I need to do in my business, or that's a great uh, article. I should, I should write an article about that. Or that reminds me of something I I need to do at work. And so I'm constantly leaving myself messages, um, voice messages uh, and it sounds kind of bizarre, but um, I think it's it keeps me mentally sharp because I'm constantly, and I really like the idea of learning from ideas from outside of your industry. So what are what are people doing outside of my industry that I could possibly use inside my industry to to get better? So that's one thing I do. Another thing I do is I have um I meet with a group of peers, uh, other CEOs in in my city, and we meet once a month and we sort of have discussions of you know, what our frustrations are, what are we learning, how are we, how are we solving our problems, and having that uh, peer group is a really great place to, to go and learn and, you know, share my concerns and hear what other people are doing, and it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, avenue for that, so I highly recommend, um, you know, having a peer group. I also have a mentor that I, I deal with, and, um, and so he's help helps me, and he's really really good at this idea of learning from outside your industry. So he's always sharing with me, "Hey, look at this article. Hey, take a look at this. Look what this guy's doing." So I think you know having you know spending time, you know learning constantly learning. You know I'm 53. I've got two master's degrees. Um, you know maybe a lot of people in my shoes don't do don't continue learning, but I think that uh, we never stop learning as leaders, we've got to continue to learn, continue to grow. And I try to do that. Um, so those are some things I do. It's an interesting thing that um, it seems to be a, a definite trend amongst people that are high performance is that they often have uh, mentors. I certainly have many mentors in my life right now that are guiding me to do the things that I want to do. Um, what are some of the things you look for when you're selecting a mentor? 
Well, I think it's got to be a good fit, right? It's got, well, for me at least, um, okay, maybe this, this, I'll just say it because this is my problem, right? If I look at somebody and if you haven't done anything in your life, if you haven't achieved something significant, I have a problem listening to you. So, you know, I mean, it'll probably come off bad and I, I probably shouldn't say it, but <laughs> I'll say it this way. If you're 24 and you're a life coach, you probably haven't lived enough life to be a life coach, right? So I really want someone that's actually been there, done that, and has got the t-shirt, right? So for example, my mentor uh, was a uh, college lacrosse coach um, and he he basically is a you know very high performing, you know, top tier college uh, lacrosse coach that you know, he, he performed at a very high level for a, a significant amount of time, and I respect him for that. And, um, and so I can, I know what I'm hearing from him. He's telling me stuff that's, that's real, that, that stuff that he's experienced. So I, I tend to want somebody that has practical knowledge and not necessarily just book knowledge. So that's important to me. Um, but the other thing is, it's got to be a personality that fits, right? It's got to be someone that um, you trust and someone that, you know, will listen and someone that uh, has, you know, you have very similar interests or what have you. So I think that really does help. You got to, you got to be able to gel. So, and I don't know how, um, how the best way to find that, but, um, but I will say this, uh, you know, top athletes, right. You know, you name your Michael Jordans or the Tom Brady's or how many coaches do they really have, right? Do they have a strength and conditioning coach? Do they have a mental coach. Do they have, they have multiple coaches in their lives and, and they're, they're helping them. You know, as, as entrepreneurs, as leaders, we need coaches too. We, we can't do this alone. So we have to be able to have people in our lives that can help us basically coach us and direct us. So I, I would highly encourage if you don't have a leadership coach or a business coach or a, a mentor that you should consider getting one because I think it really does help. I, I would definitely second that opinion because I've tried to muddle through things on my own. And then if you have the right advisor, it will shortcut probably years of trial and error to get you to where you want to go. Yeah. Um, and then you also talked about a spiritual practice, which is often neglected when leadership conversations happen. So what do you mean by spiritual practice and how does it help you? Well, I'm, I'm you know, personally for me, I'm a Christian. And so I think, you know, knowing that um, there's a, there's a God or there's someone bigger than you that's in the world that that he's in control and you're not in control, I think it makes it a little bit easier, right? If you think that you're 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 it, right? That every decision that you make is it and that there's no accountability outside your own world, I think it's I think it's harder, right? I mean having knowing that you're you know having a spiritual context or having a religious context at least gives you perspective, right? It puts you, you know, you look up at the sky, even if you don't have, if you're not a Christian or you don't have a major religion, at least have some level where you look up in the sky and see the stars and realize how small you are and how, I'd say, insignificant your problems really are in compared to the universe. I think that's helpful to get through the day, right? Because some people, they can't overcome all of the issues they feel on their back. They're carrying the burdens of their company, say, or they're carrying the burdens of a, of a, of a strained marriage or all these things. But I think when you realize that um, you are small in comparison to the, to the world, I think it makes it a little bit easier to carry those burdens that you're, that, you know, uh, you know, I, I mean, uh, this election's a, a, a good example of this, right? There's a lot of people that, are stressed out because of who's going to be the next president. Right. And that's, and that's a lot of causing a lot of anxiety and a lot of anger and a lot of outrage. The truth is if you have some sort of 
spiritual view of the world or view of the universe, I think it makes it a little bit easier because it doesn't, you don't have to get all that upset about uh, what's going to happen with the next president because you realize that that's also insignificant. So I think, I think it gives you a perspective probably best. So moving on from yourself to your next circle of influence, which is your immediate family. And I think it, it speaks to your character and your leadership skills that really you have been married for, you said, 29 years. Yes. That, that's, a, that's a long time. <laughs> so, awesome. Which is, which, is, which is an achievement because you, when people, I believe that when people commit to being married in that moment, they're really committing to being married, but um, the success rate is not, is not great. So by learning from someone who's successfully navigated that, I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned. So what are, and then you've also successfully raised two children. You said one was going off to college and one was joining the Navy. So um, what are your thoughts on leadership at home? How do you lead as, as a husband? How do you lead as a parent? You can't fire your kids theoretically. So how do you manage these things? Well, maybe I think I learned some of this on the submarine, right? So you you realize that you're you're deployed with the same people uh, for your entire patrol. Well, you know, I felt like um, when I got married, I was with my wife uh, for this whole life, right? And that was the that's the what we committed to at the ceremony. And I'm kind of a stickler with my word; I keep my word. So um, uh, yeah, so I don't even think that that's. Um, in, in my mind, at least, divorce isn't something that I I even would would consider. Right? We're gonna, we're going to make it work. We're going to figure it out. But I think early on, my wife and I got on the same page, and we said, you know, one time we were having an argument or discussion, and at some point, we finally just looked at each other, and it just sort of clicked. We're like, you know, wait a second, you know, the, we're on the same team. The two of us are on the same team. Uh, there's nobody. There's nobody who cares more about her or. She cares more about me than anyone at this, you know, on on earth. We're this little team, two people, and we're on the same team. And we, you don't fight with people on the same team. And we sort of figured that out early on. And that's been a big help. It's also been a help to have, have those open discussions, like when you do get into a fight, like realizing why. And uh, for, for example, um, for whatever reason, I, as a, as a male, maybe, I don't know, but, um, you know, we used to, we laugh about this now because I would go out to the garage and get, we had a refrigerator in the garage. I go out and get myself a drink and I come back and, and I'd walk by her and she said, aren't you going to get me a drink? And I'm like, well, I didn't think I need, you didn't ask for one. I didn't think you needed one. Uh, and so, you know, it's one of these things where you, you start recognizing, oh, there's another person in this house. There's another person. And so it's, it's sort of like having that discussion. And I told her, I said, look, sometimes I don't, read your mind well. And uh, however, I'd be more than happy to get you a drink. I'm more than happy to do anything for you. But sometimes you have to tell me because I don't sense it. You know, I don't have that, uh, whatever that is. And we laugh about it today. But um, that's been one of the big things that we do is I she'll say, look, you know, I'm, I'm tired, I need to go to bed, you know. And so it's not like she just runs upstairs and goes to sleep. So I know, I, you know, we I know what she's thinking. I don't have to read her mind. So she re- I told her, I'm like, I'm, I don't read minds. I can't tell what's going on with you. So please be verbal about it. And that's been a big, big uh, help with our marriage. Uh, the other thing is, you know, it, it changes, right? From the time you, you know, you're newlyweds and you're, you know, madly in love to you, you're raising children, you know, you're in, 
she comes from a different background. I come from a different background. How do you raise your children? What are the big decisions that you're going to make with respect to where do you send them to school? Um, you know, are you going to pay for them to go to college? What about their first car? What about their telephone? You know, when are they going to get their first cell phone? So I think, you know, recognize that you both people come from a different place of when how they were raised. And I think that um, you have to have those conversations and you have to work it out. But I think if you come from if you come from the standpoint that you're on the same team and you're in it for the long term, which is what we were in the Navy, I think that is a it's a big plus. It's certainly helpful. So um, I've, you know, and, and the other thing is, too, we have our roles in the family, right? So um, my wife doesn't have to worry about taking care of the cars or taking care of maintenance or I take care of all that. And then I don't, nece- I don't necessarily take care of any food. You know, I don't go grocery shopping. I didn't, I didn't even know where to go in a grocery store. She takes care of that. She take- so we, we fit into our roles pretty nicely too as well. So I think that is also helpful because I think a lot of times, you know, couples don't know who's, who's responsible for what and uh, they're stepping on each other's toes. And so I think some of that is, is really important, knowing your roles, knowing that you're in it for the long term. And then... Um, I mean, having grace is also important, being forgiving. And um, I think that's a big part of it, not being so sensitive when your feelings are hurt. I think you can't be that sensitive. So this is your, you know, your 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 home should be a sanctuary. It should be a place where you can go and, and refresh and rebuild. It shouldn't be a place of, of warfare and conflict. So that, that's that both my wife and I believe that. What sometimes is a source of conflict is raising children. And it's also just a a difficult thing because people will have strong feelings about raising children. There's, you know, the very authoritative, uh, dictatorial children are to be seen and not heard. And they should just do what I tell them because they're children and they're living in my house. There's that uh, middle ground democratic where there's decision-making and then there is, on the other extreme, Lays Affair, where the kid is an individual and they can do whatever they want to and they can figure it out on their own. And if they want to stay up till three in the morning eating candy, then so be it. And they'll sort it out. On that spectrum, what are your thoughts? Yes. <laughs> I say yes because it, it, it changes as, as, as they get older. So I, I think I would say that as, they, as our children were young, we, we were very strict on them in, with respect to what our expectations were from them in terms of their behavior, in terms of what time they went to bed, in terms of when they could play video games, in terms of their studies. And it was because they were young. And I think, you know, again, I'm no, uh, I'm no relationship expert. I'm no child rearing expert, but I would say, I think that um, children need to know boundaries and they see love uh, when they, they know that they're, parents are looking out for them and, and, and making sure that they know, know the boundaries they can operate in. But as our children grew older, we, we let go more and let them experience failure by themselves, experience, you know, not getting everything, not letting things work out um, the way they think they would, like, like the, you know, like not making a, a, a team. Uh, we wouldn't give them everything. So they would have to save their money and, and earn up to be able to buy a certain video game or what have you. So, so, and then now to, to, to a degree, we are very free with our boys. We're there as a, as a, as a coach, as a, as a, someone for advice, but it, you know, you, you're responsible for your life and we'll help you, but you're really responsible for it. You need to be, you need to make decisions as an adult. They're both adults. Now you need to make decisions and we're there for you to help you, but we're not going to, 
we, we're not going to tell you what to do. So I think it's, I think it changes over the life of, of your child. And um, I think it, that's worked out really well with my boys. Which I think would be, ch- which would be challenging. Um, learning to adapt your leadership style as your child grows. And I would imagine the leadership style that your child needs would also change. Like not only would it change with time, but it would also change depending on which child you're dealing with at that time. Oh Um, yeah, definitely. (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting um, uh, is that even, you know, like I was mentioning earlier, every employee is different, right? You have to treat them in a unique way. Every child is different. You have to find what you're what works with each one of your children. So um, for me, at least I have two boys and they both just reacted differently. And, um, and so being able to, you know, adapt how, how I parented them uh, and my wife parented them um, just based on their feedback, based on, Oh, wow. You know, they, they took that wrong or, you know, they got really upset at this. Whereas the other, you know, my oldest son, he, he was funny. He played, he played football and he's just a little peewee. And he had a coach just screaming and yelling at him. And I look over from the sideline and he's got a big grin on his face. He thought it was the greatest thing in the world because he was getting all this attention from the coach. And uh, my youngest son, if you do that, he would, he'd break down in tears, you know, uh, at that age. So I think, um, you know, knowing, knowing um, how, how your children deal with feedback and how they deal with adversity, how they deal with um, change is really important. And you just have to be there and observe them and like, oh, okay, well, we're not going to do that again. It didn't work. Um, So, yeah. And also just for my own, I think this is kind of an interesting thing is that I've seen parents really want their children to follow in their footsteps. Mm. Um, Like they were in the military, they want their kids to to be in the military. I'm I'm a physician and they want their children to be a physician Mm. in their specialty. And sometimes there's conflict where the parent wants their child to do something that may not be the best fit for that child. But on the flip side, I've also seen it where parents will say, um, figure it out. You do whatever you want to do. And And the kids are just lost as to what they should do. How did you approach guiding or not guiding your your kids in their future careers and professions? Yeah, that's that's really good. Um, it's a good question because I think um, we've got to be careful. We can't push our children to be, to fulfill some sort of dream that we have for ourselves, right? Um, they have to fulfill their own dreams. And um, so I think part of it is just having that, um, you know, making sure that you're you're with your children, you know, what drives them, what motivates them. But I would say over the years, we've had many conversations with our children about why we chose what we did for our careers and and what, you know, what we like about it, what we, you know, it just constantly like you'll see a TV show. It's like, oh, that guy's a, 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 you know, a salesman. Maybe I want to be a salesman. Okay, well, you know, you got to make, you know, work on a commission. So, you know, if you don't sell, you don't, you don't make any money, but you can make a lot of money. Oh, really? So you're having those conversations, any, any, any chance you have to be able to, in our opinion, it, in my wife and I, we, we wanted them to explore any kind of career path that they were interested in, but we also um, would give them some feedback like, oh, that's a great career path. You're not going to make a lot of money. You're going to have to live really frugally if you choose that path. But that is, if that's your passion, you know, you should, you should pursue it. So um so that, that's one end is having the, that dialogue, you know, ongoing dialogue. But I would say this. The other thing is, is you know, more is uh, caught than is taught 
with with children. So they're going to see how you react to your job. Are you coming home? Are you stressed out every day? Are you getting in arguments with your wife because you you, you hate your job? Um, or are you coming home and, and, and excited and you talk about what happened that day and your kids are listening and it's like, wait, what, what did you do? You, you're going, you're going to China on a business trip and you know, and you, you're, they're like asking you questions about it, but, but they're, they're catching all that thing. And, and one of the things that my wife and I, we just, you know, we, we both have a very high, uh, strong work at work, work ethic. So we're always, we, we, we put in the, we put in the hours and we work hard and um, and I think that our children have seen that and they've picked up on that, like, oh, OK, well, mom and dad work hard and that's a good thing. Hard work is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And um, and they see that with us, that we enjoy what we do. We work hard, but we enjoy what we do. And I think that that influences your children, too, towards what careers they want to go towards is they see their parents and, and what they experience. And um so, you know, the question I would say to parents is, you know, how do you act when you come home from work, you know, and, and uh, what are what are your kids taking away from that? Like you mentioned, you being a physician, you know, do they hear you come home and complain about, oh, you know, insurance, I can't stand insurance or whatever, you know, whatever the issue that you're facing and, uh, and or they're, they're just writing that down mentally, like, oh, boy, I don't know if I want to be a doctor. Dad always complains about insurance, you know, or or what have you, or the nurses, or whatever. So, but my point is, is they're going to hear that. They're going to hear that. So, uh, whatever you, you know, whatever you do, you have to, you have to portray a positive attitude towards what you do. And and um, and and the, and the fact, frankly, I, in my opinion, I don't care what my boys do with their careers. Uh, I'm, I was excited to find out my youngest son is going into the Navy, but certainly military life wasn't something I pushed them towards. I talked about it. I talked about what I did in the service, but it wasn't something that. I ever imagined either one of them would do. So. There to transition then to from from home life to business life. There are, there are a lot of books as we talked about in the very beginning of this podcast about the similarities between um, business leadership and military leadership, and often in business there's strategic outcomes and hierarchies and strategy that often overlap. However, not all military leaders make a successful transition to business leadership because there are differences that are, are very key. Can you comment on how you've successfully made that transition and why while business leadership, you can learn a lot of, of lessons from military leadership, but it's not a perfect one-to-one correlation where a successful military leader can just be plugged into corporate America and they'll just crush it as a CEO. Yeah. So you, you're, you're touching on a really important point that I never really thought of um, until, you know, I got into, into business after a while. Because people, when I would take over a new plant or I take over a new operation, I ended up running eight different manufacturing plants in corporate America before I started my own business here, uh, is that they would, people would hear I was a military leader, that I was in the Navy. And they they often right away said, oh, no, he's going to be one of those kind of guys. It's going to be command and control. It's going to be yes, sir, no, sir. Yes, you know, follow my orders. And um, it would always surprise me, like, I'm nothing like that, you know. And like, well, we expected you to be that way because you came from the military. And I think maybe some people do come out of the military with that kind of regimental sort of attitude towards leadership. 
but I came from a very unique world uh, in, in that being a, a submarine, which was small, confined, uh, people-focused. And, um, you know, uh, let me give you an example. So uh, I had a friend of mine who was also uh, a naval officer on, on board my submarine. We got a chance to go uh, to another, another base, uh, the USS Saratoga, which is an aircraft carrier, was was uh, had come in uh, from deployment, and we got a chance. We had a he had a friend that uh, was on the Saratoga and was going to give us a tour. So we were walking through the ship, and they were going to take us up to what's called officer country. So where all the officers have their berthing and they have their wardroom and all that. On the way up the stairs, there's a mirror there, and it said there's a sign. It says, "Make yourself look presentable. You're going into officer country." And my buddy and I, my Navy uh, submarine buddy and I, we just laughed at each other. Like, what is this garbage? I mean, on a submarine, you didn't look presentable to go into officer country. There was no officer country per se. It was just this tiny boat, right? We were all in it together. We wore the same uniform. We ate the same food. We all had the same size size rack, a, a bed. There was no special privileges for officers. So, um it was just strange to me, but I would imagine if you come from a culture like that, if you come from a, um, you know, you come from a place like that, a ship like that, you feel like it's, well, there's special privileges to be had as an officer, right? I'm, I'm a special person. And um, on a submarine, we, you weren't special. Everybody got treated equally. So first of all, that's part of it. Um, the, the second thing is um, being in a tight confines of a submarine as I mentioned earlier, we got to know our people really well. Like you didn't, it wasn't a command and control thing. It was a personal thing. You, you knew your employees, uh, you knew, you knew how they tick, you knew how to motivate them. And I just took that right from the military and brought that into corporate America. And it turns out that's the kind of leaders that people were looking for. They really, they really responded well to a leader that actually cared about them that actually asked them how their family was or, you know, you know, what did they think about the game last night? And just having a personal connection with them because that most leaders don't do that. And I think that, um, so I would say I'm not really an expert on how to transition from the military into corporate America, because I think I came from a very unique military background where um, we were all in it together. And, and it was a, it was always about people. You know, I say in my book, I say leadership is a people business. And I truly believe that. Um, that it's all about people. You know, we can have all the right strategies and all the plans and we can have, you know, the, the best, uh, you know, the best plans, but it's the people that execute those plans. And so part of the way I lead is, is to make sure that, uh, you know, that, 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 that the people can execute the plan. That It's all about people. And I think we bring it back to people because that's what I learned in the military. So my transition was actually pretty easy, I think, because I don't really come from a command and control military background. So it seems like that the, the business cycle is you'll have a small startup. It will do very well. It'll be fast. It'll be nimble. It will grow. And yeah. if it's well run because it has a good leader, it will grow quickly. And then it starts getting the leadership hierarchy. And then quickly you'll have a leader and whether that's in a private firm, if it's a hospital or, or what have you, you'll have a leader then that will only speak to predetermined people that are identified as leaders. And then there'll be a disconnect between the leader and the frontline, either soldiers or staff or what have you. And then that organization, because there's lack of communication between the frontline staff and the leader, 
it can't be as nimble, it can't be as quick, and then it will either be, it will just implode or it will be acquired by some other company that will either fix it or just do whatever it is they do with it. Hmm. Um, what are your, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, so I saw it firsthand, right? When I first, I was 32 years old when I got my first manufacturing plant. I had 170 employees and I knew them all by name, right? And I, I spent time on the manufacturing floor. They knew me, they knew me, I knew them. But then I got getting promoted and then I had multiple plants and then I would only get to see certain employees you know, maybe once every four weeks when I got to that site. And, and I moved, as I moved up, there were layers between me and, and the employees, right? I didn't know my employees' names anymore. I was disconnected. And I think that's what I think a lot happens to a lot of companies. As you get bigger and bigger and bigger, the guy in the corner office or the, uh, the lady in the corner office doesn't have that personal connection with their employees. They see them as a number, <clears throat> And they are also surrounded by people who think the way they think. So in a, in a situation where you're in a corporate office and you're surrounded by corporate people, all your vice presidents, and you all see the world in a very similar way. <clears throat> and you sit in these meetings and you make decisions about the business based on your view of the world. And what I tell leaders is that if you're in a position where you're just around a lot of people that think like you, you're in trouble. You need to get out of those bubbles. I call them leadership bubbles or management bubbles. You got to get out of those bubbles and you got to get to what I call Gemba. And that's Gemba is a Japanese term and it comes from the, uh, uh, the Toyota production system uh, mentality. Gemba means the real place. It's where the value is added. So for example, in a hospital, it would be, it would be actually on the floors where the patients are, right? You want to be where the, where the real work is being done. You don't want to be in the back offices. You want to be in a real place. So in manufacturing, it's on the shop floor. You want to go to the shop floor and see how it's really going on, see what's really going on. And too many leaders sit back in corporate uh, offices and they sit back in, in, in their bubble, if you will, and they make decisions without really knowing the consequences. They don't really know their people. They're like, we got to get rid of 10 heads. Well, those 10 heads are 10 employees, 10 people that have families, 10 people that, that depend on that salary for doing some, uh, you know, for, for, for taking care of their families. Mm -hmm. So I think, I don't know. I think we, we, we tend to, as, as companies get bigger, I think the humanity gets lost to be honest. And I think that's really to, to find a leader of a large company that still believes in people, takes care of their people and understands what's happening in their organization is very rare. That's why you have shows like the undercover boss, right? Mm -hmm. Where they go into the situation like, Oh, I didn't know this was happening. Well, you didn't know what's happening because you don't spend any time uh, in your organization. You're spending too much time in your bubble. So um, I think that's a big part of why these bloated companies start making decisions that aren't best for the people. Well, it, it's funny that you mentioned that because when I think of um, either friends or colleagues of mine in, in the hospital world or even in the business world, when employees get the sense that the leaders don't really care about them, and like you said, if they need to cut, like cut 10 people, and they're, you know, they're friends with one of those people that were cut and they get the sense that the company, it's great that they're a top performer, but if the company doesn't care about them and their colleagues and the impact on them and their colleagues and their friends and families, then if they're a top performer, they're the first to go because there'll be another company that may not be as big or may not be as powerful, but they care about their um, people. 
So if you're a top performer, it's easy for you to say, well, fine, I'm leaving that. I'm going to this other company and they'll take care of me and I'll, I'll drive their success. And then suddenly you'll have this company that only cares about the bottom line. They don't care about their people, but all the best people have left because they can, because they, the best people can always find somewhere else to go. And, and that's often why the company will then implode. What are your thoughts on that statement? Yeah, no, exactly. I, I would say this too is, um, so I blame the accountants. So I'll tell you why. So, um, so I study, I have an MBA. So in, and one of the things they teach you is that uh, personnel expense, all right, is an expense uh, on the profit and loss uh, uh, statement, the P&L statement, right? So when you have a large number of people with high salaries, you have a large expense, right? And so you have your sales and then you have these large expense and then you have your profits. So as the size of your people grow, you know, the number of people and, the, and their salaries, you reduce your profit. So short-term managers, of course, this is, you know, in the world we live in today, you get these short-term bosses. They come in, they're there for two years, they're there to make a name for themselves and then move on, right? So what do they see? Well, I've got to improve profits. So what am I going to do? Wow, that personnel expense is huge. Look at all that. I need to get this down. Well, how do I do it? Well, I'll freeze salaries or I'll reduce headcount or I'll do all these things. And then suddenly the, uh, the bottom line improves right? And they're only there for two years. They get that bottom line to improve and then they move on to the next job, right? And they don't have to deal with the consequences of that, the long-term consequences of that short-term behavior. Now, think about it this way. We take all of our equipment, like in a hospital, right? Your MRI, I'm going to be careful what I say. I know nothing about medical, but your MRI machines, your X-ray machines, all these assets you have, we put that on the balance sheet. We call that an asset. And how do we treat assets? Well, we know that for them to add value over the long term, we need to maintain it. We need to take care of them. We need to repair them. We need to upgrade them, right? So we, we take care of our assets very special, but our, our expenses, we want to get rid of. We want to lower our expenses, but we want to take care of our assets. So I always hear this, so we say, people are our greatest assets. And I say to myself, well, let me see your, let me see your financial statements, because I don't think they are. They're actually on there as an expense and you're treating them like an expense. And that's what I see a lot of bosses and a lot of big companies do. They treat their people like an expense. And, um, and when you do that, you're going to get, um, you're going to get a certain type of behavior, but if you treat them as an asset, right? An asset is something that adds future value to your company. Well, who more is going to add more value to your company, an x-ray machine or really amazing doctor, right? That that's, that's really what it comes down to. And so my mindset has always been, Okay, these the employee's expense is on my is is on my profit and loss statement as an expense, but in my mind they're an asset. I know for a fact because I've led so many people that I've seen people add millions of dollars of value to a company when they're properly motivated. So their expense is tiny compared to the value they bring to an organization. And when your mindset is that way, you think how can I get this employee everything they need? to be able to add, add as much value as they can to the organization? How can I help them, you know, get to, to achieve their best, right? And, and that's a different mindset than, than an employee's an expense, and I just want to get rid of them so I can make my short-term numbers so I can get promoted. It's a different mindset. It's a long-term mindset. It's a mindset based on knowing that employees add value, and you have to come, go into it with that mindset. You're a coach. You've co- you've you've led manufacturing. Um, you've led your own company. What would you say? Let's let's just say the single thing. What is this? Let's say what is the first the single best thing a CEO can do, and then the single worst thing a CEO can do. 
<laughs> yeah. If so, you had to um, pick one. Yeah. So I think the, the single most important thing a, a CEO can do is know their people, spend time in the organization, get to Gimbo, get to where the value is added, spend as much time as can to, so that people see you and you see them. That's really important so that you don't have a distorted view of the organization and that you realize that there's people um, that are affected by your decisions. Let me give you one quick quick story. I have um, I had a plant I was running here in North Carolina. I had um, 250 employees, and we would do an annual uh, family day at Kings Dominion up in Virginia's big amusement park. But at lunch, we would bring all the employees and their families into one pavilion, and we allowed all of our employees to bring their immediate family. So I gave a little speech. I usually every year I would give a little speech, and then we'd hand out door prizes and things like that. It was a lot of fun. But I got up on stage uh, and I real I looked out the first time we had one of these things and I saw a thousand people in that pavilion. And I think it's, you know, I think CEOs need to have those kind of experiences because they, you recognize that you are not just making decisions for the organization. You're making decisions for, and, and not just your employees, but your employees and their families. Your, your decision, decisions may have large consequences. Those are a thousand people that are depending on me to make the right decisions every day. And so that is a very humbling experience. And I think more leaders need to find themselves in those humbling experiences so they understand the impact of their decisions. So getting to know your people, spending time with the people and facing the reality of what it means to cut 10 jobs or cut 100 jobs, uh, that that's really important. And what would you say then is the, uh, I, I, the worst thing a CEO can do? <laughs> yeah. So, um, oh, I hate this. Uh, uh, so it's, it's, it's portraying that you're special. I, I really can't stand this. Uh, you know, you, <clears throat> so I get to tell you my story, right? I've always, I've always been fascinated with, uh, with, uh, sports cars. I always, someday in my mind, I wanted to get a Porsche because I just think it's a cool car and it'd be kind of need to have. But I always said to myself, as long as I'm running a manufacturing plant, I'm never buying one. I'm never going to drive into the parking lot with a Porsche because I don't think it sends the right message. And I think, as I mentioned on a submarine, <clears throat> we as leaders weren't tra- treated in any spe- any dif- differently than, than the people that, were, that were, were enlisted on the on the boat. We weren't treated special. And I think many leaders expect that you will you know, you, you when I'm the CEO, you got to talk to me a certain way. I, you, I'm going to show up. I have a reserved parking spot. I have a fancy sports car. Look at my big house. Look at, and so they're 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 portraying themselves as you know special, and, I, and that's that bothers me probably more than anything, and it bothers people as well too. So you've got somebody on one side of the organization making minimum wage, and the boss is showing up in his Porsche every day, right? And I think there's a, it creates a lot of animosity. It creates an us and them culture. And that's uh, just never, it's never good for the organization. So I would say as much as you can, you know, be that humble CEO where you're focused on people and you're not focused on yourself. So, um, and that's hard to do because the people that tend to get CEO jobs are the ones that are all about themselves and they're all about managing their career and looking special and looking right. And they appear like a CEO. So they get the slow CEO position. So they're full of, uh, they're full of themselves and they tend to get those kind of roles. So, but it, it's never, and I don't think it ever works out really well when you have a boss like that. It's hard to respect them. I think, I think that's a great, um, great final thought. So 
John, thank you so much for taking your time to, to share leadership lessons, um, how to deal with stress, how to really lead your family and lead from a position in any sort of business culture. Any closing thoughts for um, the audience? You know, I say leadership is a people business, uh, but also, you know, being being a good father and a good husband, it's a people business too. You've got to spend time with your family. Uh, people say, well, uh, I spend quality time. Well, no, it's got to be quantity time too. So, and the same thing with your employees, you've got to spend time with them and get to know them. So, you know, we're all unique. I say a lot of times too, that people are messy and that's a good thing. You've got, you've got to recognize that not everybody's going to fit into whatever box that you think they should fit into. But part of being a leader, part of being, you know, leading your family well is recognizing that everybody's different and you find their strengths and you've got to be able to try to try to get the to manage them in the best way they can for 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 the way that they're best led. So that's uh, I would I'd leave it with is that leadership's a people business. And um, that's my my final thought. So, John, again, your book, I Have the Watch, Becoming a Leader Worth Following. It's on Amazon. The links will be in the show notes as well as your social media contacts. Um, again, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy, um, busy schedule to talk to me. Oh, I enjoyed it. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and visit the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page. We are always looking for feedback and new story ideas. Thanks again and see you next time.